Hello and welcome to this latest Fraser of Islander podcast. This week we published our um, quarterly economic commentary and as part of that we're publishing a series of articles looking at a number of different policy issues and how they relate to the current COVID-19 crisis. Today we're going to publish two new articles um, as part of the commentary series looking at issues for some of the most disadvantaged households in Scotland. These, uh, the issues that we're covering in these papers were some of the key priorities of the Scottish Government prior to this crisis, tackling poverty and inequality and reducing the poverty-related educational attainment gap. The COVID crisis is unlikely to shift these from being policy priorities and the pandemic has, if anything, increased the focus on issues of inequality. So joining me to discuss this today um, I'm pleased to say are my colleague Emma Congreve from the Fraser Valander Institute and Dr Jonathan Norris who's a lecturer in economics uh, at the University of Strathclyde. So um, firstly Emma, um, why don't you tell us what the paper you're publishing today is about? Thanks Mary. Yeah so the paper, um, one of the papers we're publishing today is looking at the trends we've seen in tackling poverty and income inequality, um, mainly over the, the last 10-15 well, years since the last recession in Scotland. Now the reason we're looking at these is because the period of recession and recovery has been a key period where the Scottish Government has actually had tackling poverty and inequality as, as kind of core goals within within a framework such as the National Performance Framework. So what we wanted to look at is, is how successful Scotland has been in really kind of making a shift on some of these issues. And the reason we want to look at it at this time is because it can be quite instructive looking at what's happened um, over the, the last uh, sort of 10, 15 years when we're trying to think about what the economy may look like post COVID. And we've had a lot of talk about building back better um, and trying to shift the economy to be slightly fairer in its outcomes. But a lot of that has to be driven um, by policy priorities and delivery of, of key policies that help to achieve that. And what we wanted to look at is how successful the Scottish Government was over the last every while in, in doing that. And hence, what can that tell us about what they may need to, to do the same or do different in the post-COVID-19 period. So some of the key things we looked at were um, overall poverty rates. We looked at poverty for particular groups, um, for those with a disability or long-term limiting health condition and for those in minority ethnic groups. And we also looked at income inequality Compared, comparing Scotland to both the UK and to Ireland and Sweden, just to see what the trends look like there. And the key sort of overriding trend we see is that, that Scotland has followed very closely what has been happening um, for the UK as a whole. Not always are these statistics either moving in the right direction. And the fact that they are sort of tracking the UK quite closely isn't necessarily particularly surprising. You know, we are still very um, embedded within the UK. 
and um, we have a very similar economies and we also share a lot of, of policy particularly on issues such as social security which is very important for low-income households and that policy um, program has very much been driven by the UK government over the last 10-15 years um, and Scotland has only very recently acquired powers over social security and they are in themselves quite limiting powers the main means tested benefits remain reserved to Westminster but there are other areas where the government in Scotland has had more um, more leeway in terms of what it wanted to do so issues around um, you know wider drivers of the economy um, things about fair work which has been a big um, Scottish government priority so these there are things that the Scottish government has tried to do and of course it has talked a lot about the things it wants to do so what we unfortunately see from this is despite this kind of this um this being made a priority in terms of what the government wants to achieve it hasn't really translated into a big divergence in performance on some of these key metrics compared to um, the rest of the UK or the UK average and indeed to countries such as Ireland or Sweden who have seen um, either much lower rates of income inequality over that time or a reduction in, in a slightly different trend over time that's more favourable compared to what we've seen in Scotland. Do you think it's fair, a fair question to ask why more hasn't been achieved over this period? You know, are there, are there things we can learn from those other countries in terms of how they've turned these ambitions into kind of policy, practical policy um, deliverables? Yeah. Well, I mean, to be, to be fair, this is a hugely complex area. It's not simple to just, you know, take a policy that appears to have worked somewhere else and just transplant it into the Scottish economy. And um, we have obviously a very different um, economic setup than, than places like Scandinavia and um, Sweden we looked at in particular. Um, and, and as I say, we are still, you know, a lot of our policy is driven by what happens down in Westminster for reserve policy and um, priorities and in terms of, of what comes up to Scotland through Barnett consequentials. So it's a very complex area. But one thing that um, would, would help immeasurably is is probably a better understanding of what the Scottish government has tried to do over the past 10-15 years because clearly there has been a lot of effort put into programs and policies in order to to try and shift some of these metrics but why why has that not come through in terms of outcomes and that's what we really need to understand before we kind of start again <laughs> and try and you know renew the economy so in terms of monitoring and evaluation of, of some of these policies and what they've achieved and what they've not achieved, it does feel we're quite lacking in, in that knowledge in Scotland. Um, and that's, that's really crucial before we, yeah, before we take a run at this again. <laughs> you know, we have to um, take time to understand what's gone before, not make the same mistakes again and build on where there have been successes. I think that's the only way we can um, be sure that we're going to make progress um, otherwise it is a bit kind of you know um, it, it feels a bit uh, ad hoc in terms of sometimes the approaches are taken and we don't take the time to really understand whether they're working and why yeah and you've mentioned obviously looking to the future and, and um, the phrase building back better that's been used a lot um, and 
you know, there's been a number of different ways that's been interpreted around um, the sorts of um, employment we have and the way the labour market's structured, um, the level of inequality in our society, and, and even around things like um, a low carbon future. But thinking about poverty um, in particular, and given the trends we've seen over recent years, what would be kind of your concerns or your views on, on how the emergence from the pandemic might impact on poverty in Scotland? Mm. Yeah, so I think what we can be certain about is that incomes for for those lower down income distributions, so those currently in poverty or close to, to the poverty line, um, for many of those of those families and households, they're going to be facing um, reductions to their income. So we know that a lot of um, the, the key shutdown sectors have been related to things like hospitality and non-food retail, which, um, yeah, employ a lot of, of low earners and particularly part-time workers um, who may have caring responsibilities and that sort of thing. So there's a lot caught up in that in terms of where some of these job losses, um, well, for now furlough, but potentially future job losses might fall. So I think there is, there's a big risk in terms of poverty um, and in terms of, you know, just thinking about mobility in the labour market and people being able to go out and um, get more hours and change jobs, a lot of that will, will be very sluggish for, for a long time. So there, there's obviously, I think it goes without saying that we expect those at the lower end of the distribution to be hit quite heavily um, by what's going on now and probably will continue to happen um, you know, and unfold over the next weeks and months. But also we know that people higher up the income distribution have also been hit. So in terms of how that, that will um, reflect in things like measures of relative poverty, which don't just count income of those at the lowest end of the income distribution, they also, it, you know, it's how they relate to those with income slightly higher up the income distribution, so the average household. So some of those metrics might look, look a bit odd for, for, for some time. Um, and it will take a couple of years probably for us to really get that understanding of what's of what exactly has happened um, to incomes for everybody in the income distribution. But that's that waiting for that understanding, you know, that will be too late in terms of actually doing something about it. So, so we know that, that low income households are going to struggle. So it's thinking um, in the next, um, you know, the very near future, what can be done there. So the key drivers of poverty being um, access to, to income through employment, which we know is going to be um, sort of constrained um, access to income through social security and that Scotland does have more, more powers over social security so things like the Scottish child payment which is in the pipeline um, but has been pushed back due to delivery challenges related to COVID you know there's a, there's a key um, rationale for why that needs to be you know reprioritized and, and got out the door sooner um, and then the other Area, which we don't look at in the article today because it's looked at in detail elsewhere is housing costs and ensuring that um, the a that people have secure housing um, and you know issues around rent arrears and such like which will have bubbled up for many people and um, don't lead to kind of a, a, a spike in in um, evictions and such like but also ensuring that housing costs remain kind of you know affordable um, and obviously the role of, of of, of sectors like the social housing sector is quite important within that. So there are definitely things that the Scottish government can do, um, whilst it, and there are other things that will be out with their control, but um, it is that thing about focus um, and 
and then monitoring and evaluation um, very closely in terms of actually understanding what what is working well and being being honest and transparent when things aren't quite working as well as expected you know that's 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 normal in policy development not everything's going to work in the way you expect it to work um, but understanding that and then reprioritizing is really is a really key part of, of building successful strategies for things like tackling poverty and, and inequality. Okay, thanks very much for that, Emma. Um, we obviously know that there are many consequences that stem from, from growing up in poverty. Health is, is one, um, the impact it has on health outcomes throughout a person's life. Um, and obviously that's been kind of thrown into sharp relief during this pandemic. Um, with much higher death rates on average in, in more deprived areas, which we've seen across the UK. Um, but the other known harm is to educational attainment, which the other paper that we're publishing today focuses on. Jonathan, can I just ask you to run through the main themes from, from the paper that we're putting out today on this? Yeah, sure. And thanks for having me first off. And also, uh, Emma and I put this together. So Emma, please feel free to you know jump in at, the, at any time as well. So. Um, don't hesitate at all. Uh, so this, I think a couple of things, if we're talking about building back better, uh, that we want to really think carefully about is how skills develop. So the sources of the, the consequences of inequality in later life on whether it's your labor market outcomes that we see people experience or a range of a health outcomes, a range of just sort of quality of life outcomes. A lot of the sources of uh, of these outcomes start in childhood is one of the things the research is really starting to tell us and that if you don't address them in childhood then you're going to have a potentially really hard time addressing them later not to say that you may not be able to but that it's going to be much more difficult right and so that means that you want to think about how these sources begin in childhood and, and what is it that's going on there how where, where are the channels for policy and so what we try to talk about in this article first of all are what are the skills that are sensitive during early life and, and <clears throat> some of these are the classic type of skills that we try to capture by test scores as a way of of marking progress of students but one of the things the literature is really telling us these days is that really doesn't capture enough right there's all of these broader socio-emotional skills that are developing during this period and, and just to throw out some examples that are coming out there but these things are everything to include self-control or or grit, if you're familiar with Angela Duckworth's work on grit, and there's all of these type of patience. I mean, all of this kind of goes in. And what we're learning is that these sort of explain a lot of later life outcomes that, or variation in those that test scores don't give us, they don't capture, right? And so that's really important because that means that there's a whole component of how well people tend to do that test scores don't necessarily capture very well. And that's not anything wrong with that because these type of skills might be relatively difficult to measure in a common metric. It's, it's not that we're missing them on purpose, but it's that they're important, right? And we should be conscious of them. Uh, and the, the second reason that we're starting to learn that they're really important and we want to think about them is because they turn out to be quite sensitive. They, they especially early life, but only through adolescence, they really seem to respond to the environments that the kids are growing up in, okay? And so that's that's the maybe the second important lesson. One, they're really important, and, and two, they 
they can kind of change. They can develop over time. You're not just born with a particular set of skills and that's it. You, you, you sort of have the, the, the family life you have, the, the schools that you have, the neighborhoods that you live in, and all of these things go into how, you know, the type of patients you're going to develop, how you learn how to, to even put in effort into your schoolwork, which is, it's not just a matter of I'm going to do it today. It's a matter of you've learned skills and develop uh, around how you're going to do that. And, and that, then maybe even how to navigate the educational system when it comes to going to universities and it comes to post-university navigating job markets and networks and these type of things. There's a whole bundle of skills around this type of thing, right? And that matters for how well you'll do once you're actually an adult and you're experiencing these outcomes. Okay. Uh, so the third, I would say, say maybe final thing to talk about with skill development before we move on to think about, um, how the economic shocks and that might come from COVID will impact parenting is that when these investments are lacking, that they oftentimes lead to skill trajectories that are diverging between kids who are, uh, have access to more resources and kids who have access to fewer resources. And if you imagine this played out over time, as these skill trajectories diverge and become turn into skill gaps by the time you reach uh, university and by the time you pass out of university you're sort of entering young adulthood with disadvantage right and in the, in the bundle of skills that you have even if you graduated even if you actually got through the education system you might still come out of it disadvantaged in the type of skills that will help you be successful in life and then so if we want to close those gaps then we need to to attack the whole picture of skill development in early life, not simply trying to get people to, we want them to graduate, we want them to attain for sure, but we want also we want to think about attainment as an attainment of an entire bundle of skills that will help people be successful in life. So that's maybe the first bit to get in mind. And I think that, that Em and I have tried to go into a bit more detail laying out how this, this plays out in, in the article. The second part that we, we tackle is asking how might investments which oftentimes these investments happen in the home with families and in schools how might they be impacted by the economic shocks that come from COVID-19 and the crisis okay and and several of the themes that emerge from the literature on this are that one we would expect uh, with parents that let's suppose they equally care about their children and and, and so many parents do it does you know we don't want to start from a point of thinking that uh, there's different preferences over how parents are going to invest in their children. What we'd like to say is parents might have the exact same preferences for investing in their children, right? So why might it, what might lead to these differences in investments? And one of the, the central lessons from the, the, the uh, sort of the economic and academic literature on this is that where there's economic shocks that create more inequality, the parents who are potentially more say disadvantaged or from a lower income tend to have a lot more stressors that that are on top of them in a way that makes it much more difficult to focus on the type of skill building investments so one simple example is uh, where there's lower income you may be potentially more likely to face poor neighborhoods because you can't afford to, to buy into neighborhoods where the rental price is higher and where the schools are better and where there's safer streets, et cetera. And this leads to needing to spend a lot more time trying to safeguard your children 
rather than thinking about investing in this large bundle of skills where they're going to learn how to navigate the education system and the university system and the job markets afterwards, right? So you've got a lot of things diverting your attention away, uh, not really so much by your own desires, but by since essentially what's forced by the, the situation that you face in front of you every day. So that's just one simple example that we try to sort of talk through how this leads to differences in the type of investments that parents can make. Another obvious case is you have an economic shock from the crisis, there's lower budgets. If it in impacts people, especially on the lower income uh, side of the distribution, then we can then see that exasperate the type of investments that they can afford to make in their children, right? And that, that then can translate into deeper skill gaps over time. This is all thrown maybe into you know, light, especially nowadays, because a lot of kids are outside of school. So you, you've got the fact that they're in the homes. And so if there's, there's going to be a divergence in the equality of skills, right? And, and that's going to, you might think that, well, this has been a short period of time. But the issue is that while skills are developing in childhood, they also build on each other over time. So if you get on a bad skill trajectory now, that can sort of get into it without without coming in with some sort of intervention to help stop that, that can get you into a sort of a kind of rolling downhill type of, of example. Your skills are building on each other. The, the shock has come in and uh, changed the budget constraints, changed the resources of the families that could play out for not just, you know, during the lockdown phase, but for years to come. And now you've got differences in, in investments in children that don't, just play out for the pandemic, but they play out for a long period afterwards. So then what, what, what comes out of this, uh, you also have the neighborhoods the families live in are gonna change, right? Because if there's inequality in the neighborhoods and the quality of the schools or the quality of, the, of the, uh, just the housing or you know, the, you know, the safety of the streets, everything, that's gonna get worse if there's now a divergence in, 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 uh, in income inequality. Uh, if it gets worse, if the, if the pandemic deepens that divide, then you're going to get <clears throat> even more problems with your in inequality on neighborhoods. And so the last part of our paper is trying to talk about how that interrelates with the decisions that families are being forced to make, right, and what happens to the children as they're developing. And so some of that is about the schools. And so what is it that we can do with schools, especially in this time, but maybe more thinking about afterwards when kids are going back to school, right? So how can we help schools interact better with parents to help mitigate some of these potential issues to help close the inequality divides, right? And that might be investing in programs to, to help where there's especially been uh, communities that have been hit hard <clears throat> by the consequences of the pandemic. So I think, that's one avenue, but the other avenue to concerned about is that as we invest in neighborhoods, you know, we need to make sure that the families that we're trying to support are able to still live in those neighborhoods as you potentially have rising rental prices because you improve the quality of the neighborhood. Now you might potentially see this sort of classic gentrification, right? And, and, and then the families you aim to help are being shifted out. And what you're really going to get is you're going to still get those skill gap trajectories because you're not actually going to get the investments in the kids that you plan to because those families are now forced out. They're actually living in the same conditions they were living in before, right? And nothing's really changed. So I think the main point we try to make in the paper is that you can't have one single channel and policy that you try to implement 
to, to address this. You're going to have to have, uh, um, say, multiple policies working together on different angles. And that's the income of the families. That's the quality of the schools, you know, right? That's the, the opportunity that, the, that is within the neighborhoods itself that the children and the families have. So they have a quality of uh, sort of opportunity for investments themselves. And then that's making sure that when you do this, those families are able to stay where you've tried to, to, to come in and provide support. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to have to deal with all three of these things. And in doing that over the long haul, and I think we're really talking about <clears throat> generational change here because you're talking about investments today that are going to play out for the children for the rest of their lives. Okay. And so some of these things, we may not see the full fruits of them until they're grown and that can take a lot of patience. So trying to, to work on all of these different channels in a unified type of framework is really what's going to be needed. And if you have disconnects, you're going to risk that other things can come come in that sort of challenge what you were trying to do, it, it, even if you're trying to do what is in effect the right thing. Um, so. Okay. And I'll just jump in here just to sort of, um, to, to speak about how we relate this to what you know, Scottish government policy is in this area. And, you know, the Scottish government has put a lot of focus on educational attainment, things like the attainment challenge fund and, and has really kind of tried to, to boost, um, understanding and you know put practical actions into schools to to really um, and resources to help um help with with raising attainment um, related to the poverty attainment gap but i suppose there's two two key points from this is is firstly it's so clear that that obviously i mean the clue is in the name it's a poverty related attainment gap so efforts to reduce poverty and to get money to, to parents is a crucial part of the strategy in order to, to tackle um, the attainment gap. And taking some of those you know, stresses off parents just by you know, alleviating some of the, you know, the, the budget crises that they face. You know, we, we are talking about parents not having enough money to, to feed their children and themselves or to, you know, or to keep the home heated. You know, these are, these are stresses that are faced um, day in day out and uh, uh, particularly you know they're, they're overwhelming um, for parents to have to try and deal with so so try and re remove those stresses and that and that is a really key point of that educational attainment policy and tackling poverty policy are you know so intertwined yet we don't always see that in in the kind of you know education um you know speeches by ministers or in in the kind of policy and evaluation of, of the educational attainment policy that that link to tackling poverty isn't always um as front and center as maybe um it, it should be but um and then and then secondly i think it is that the focus that's of the attainment um policy in scottish government is very much focused on schools um, and and you know getting investment into schools um, helping children in schools and you know that's that is really you know that is an important channel but it's just one channel and then we take away um schools from the equation like during a pandemic um you know that it's really it's 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 risky um and and also you know we have school holidays and such like it is to to have that um most of the focus on what happens in schools you know does risk um 
you know, when you take those schools away, it does, it does, um, you know, throw open risk. And, and none of us thought this pandemic was going to come and, and shut down schools in the way it was, but it, it is an ever-present risk now, you know, there will, there will be another pandemic at some point. So how do you future-proof um, attainment policy? And, and as, as Jonathan has said, keep um, focus on, on the multiple different channels that are required um, to make that real difference over time. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, we'll need to think about in, in educational policy um, going forward. Yeah, thanks both. Um, Jonathan, you've talked about um, the impacts that can happen on, on low-income households and those in poverty during a, an economic crisis. And essentially it can widen these inequalities and maybe have a more of a scarring effect on children in these households um, as they move through their life. Um, do you think the nature of this particular crisis and the fact that those children were also removed from schooling, I mean, I, basically Emma sort of just said it, but I'm taking from what you've said, you know, is that there are implicate, there could be much more serious implications from this period of time where these children were also dislocated from school and that's that, that environment where the, the impacts of this particular crisis could be kind of more serious and maybe more long lasting. I, I, I think that that's what the research is telling us. And, and, and one, um, to use a, a kind of a jargony phrase, but that I'll explain it. It, it. There's this concept called dynamic complementarities. And the idea is that when skills are, are developing, they're building on, on each other. So you really effective investment scaffold over time, right? So what this is potentially doing, uh, the real risk for, for vulnerable children, especially, is that you've got a whole period of time where you're potentially having investments wiped out. Um, and again, I'd like to emphasize that it's not because their families don't necessarily want to, right? I think that that's really important to, to point out. It's, it's, it's because it's not a simple, because if that was the case, you could have people coming in and saying, it's just simply a matter of telling the parents what to do. And this is absolutely not what the research tells us. And I want to be clear about that. The research is telling us that what's happening is they're vulnerable because their, their parents are also vulnerable. They're in difficult circumstances and that forces, uh, uh, that gives them a position where they lack that opportunity to make those investments. Okay. And so with that in mind, if you've got the schools are shut down and it's just a complete shock to the system, then they were potentially making up some of these investments in school. Right. So now that's gone and what's being done to replace that. And you're not going to be able to go back and get that time back. Right. So to come in with investments later, but you've already missed a really big, significant and sensitive period, especially for kids in early life. Okay. And so that suggests that one, that can lead to really long, if, if you do nothing, if you absolutely do nothing, now tomorrow will be affected by what happened today, right? So these dynamic complementarities are gonna matter because the skills are gonna build on each other, right? And if it was lacking there before, then that means tomorrow it's gonna be much more likely to have a difficult time get going. So what can we do though, not to be too pessimistic? And that means that one, thinking about how better to support the parents right now, so they have more opportunity, so they don't miss as much uh, of these investments. And then two, afterwards, we, you, know, you, you want to come in where the people have been the most vulnerable, both supporting the parents, supporting their income, right? So you lower their stress levels, so you give them more opportunity, but also when the schools reopen, realizing that, hey, this has been a big hit, not just to potentially to the test scores, but to all of this big bundle of skills. And can we come in and do uh, um, sort of, investments in the school 
and trying to, and there's a lot of really excellent examples of programs in schools that try to build on these type of, uh, of skills. Okay. So it's not just something that's sort of out there and, and, and we don't know what to do. There's a lot of really great examples coming into the schools and saying, we're going to have Pacific time where we build on these and try to realize that they've, you know, been put at a disadvantage now. And we know, we know that we can make up for that over time. Okay, we can do that, but we have to we have to make the steps to do it. And that's going to be really important or otherwise, as you said, you'll get really long term consequences because you start off with a small uh, a gap in skills. Right. But if you think about this as a trajectory over time, if you get two sets of kids and one set of kids is on one trajectory and the other set of kids is on the other trajectory on a lower trajectory, what happens over time is that's just going to spread into a really wide gap by the time they're le ready to to leave high school so uh, and we, we we want to do is say that hey look that doesn't have to be the case right that that's that's not necessarily destiny um but it matters how we respond and getting that i think right or, or doing our best to get that right now is going to be crucial to avoiding these diverging skill trajectories that will lead to these really long-term consequences yeah Thanks, Johnson. And just, just finally, um, Emma, um, just from a policymaker's point of view, um, you know, you mentioned monitoring and evaluation earlier um, of, of policy around poverty. Um, what, what do you think the challenges are when you're talking about social emotional skills in children and things like that, and to sort of monitoring and evaluating the policies that are working um, in this space, which because they can be quite by their nature quite long term. Yes. Yeah, so these things are really hard to measure. They tend to be things that say don't change quickly. And when things don't change quickly, it can be hard to keep focus on how important they are and, and also on how they're changing over time and how that relates back to interventions that were made earlier. Often with attainment policy, you know, we'll hear metrics, you know, just on one single thing um, that's kind of say oh things have got better this year things have got worse you know depending on who's um who's making the point so it can lose that that nuance of, of actually what we're trying to achieve on aggregate but you know we've had education policy devolved for a long time so we can look back and and actually maybe do a bit more tracking and understanding of what happened to previous cohorts who also went through times such as big expansions in social security during you know the early mid 2000s with things like the expansion of tax credits you know so there was a big shift in, in income coming into households you know we could look a lot more closely at the impact of that um you know as well as what, what else was going on in terms of um education in school policy at the time to understand what's the importance of some of these drivers for Scotland, and um, you know, and and what we need to learn from that and prioritise going forward, because this is critically important not just for for the young people involved, but also ultimately for you know a strong and prosperous economy going forward with with um, a highly skilled labour market um, and you know, yes, these things are hard to measure, but they are, you know, of critical importance um, to our young people and our economy. 
um, you know, and will continue to be. Yeah, Jonathan, did you want to build on that? Yeah, I, I was going to just, uh, one, wholeheartedly agree and, and just tag on one small thing, which is to say that, you know, when we think about test scores, which are, we're not saying these are not useful, that they really are, but they've had, we've had years to develop them and refine them uh, across the school system and in and, and, and academia. You know, what we're talking about now is, is indeed difficult to measure, and we could really get in the weeds talking about, and we won't, but we could, you know, on, on how, what are the tips being done to how to think about measuring these things and what are the challenges. Um, but, you know, it, that I think Emma mentioned something much earlier on about how, you know, sometimes we have to make decisions about policy before we have all the answers because otherwise we're going to wait till it's too late. And, and I think this is a this is an area where we know a lot. We know that the the consequences, right? We know a lot about what's important, and we do know a lot about types of interventions that can come in that really help. And we know a lot of the channels. We don't necessarily know exactly how to perfectly measure it all just yet, right? But I think if we really start to get our eyes trained on that and thinking about it and in investing in that type of policy now, we're going to develop those skill sets. We're going to develop that as an as a educational system, right? And, and I think in the long run, that'll pay off in it because these things indeed affect attainment, which is, you know, if that's all right, you know, we want attainment, but more than attainment, we want people to be able to have equal opportunity at having, you know, uh, the, the life that they, they'd like to pursue, right? And, and to get people there, you know, I think begins with, you know, tackling some of these challenging uh, issues that, that we've been talking about today. Well, thanks both um, very much. Finishing off on some um, issues that really underline the importance of dealing with um, uh, issues of poverty for children in, in early life and the impacts it can have on our economy ultimately in the long run. So yeah, I'd just like to thank Emma and Jonathan for, for joining me today. Um, you can get our podcast through all uh, major streaming platform um, and there's a number of different podcasts on different issues that may interest you. So have a look and see what we've got there. You can keep up with all of our um, COVID-related um, analysis at FraserOfAllender.org and also subscribe to our email list there. So thanks very much for joining us today and we'll see you again soon for another edition of the Fraser Valander podcast.